bore our burdens, bore our sin, bore our shame, cleansed us and made us white as snow. Jesus, help us to remember that no matter what we have done, where we have been, what we will do, that your grace and your goodness and your blood is enough to cleanse us for now and for eternity. And thank you, Jesus, that not only do we get to spend eternity with you, but we get to spend it together with our brothers and sisters. Help us to remember that the things of this earth are very temporary. In the name of your son, amen. You know, I just love it when a sinner sings about grace. And uh, that was really good. So somebody asked me this week, are you doing anything different in your sermons because of this pandemic? And I said, no, we've been just preaching through the gospel of Mark because there's plenty of lessons about pandemics there. It's been pretty amazing, right? We haven't had to do any topical messages. They've all been coming right out of the scripture as we go chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And this week is really no different. Um, My name's Joe Davis. For those of you tuning in for the first time, I'm the pastor here at Grace Life Sarasota. Uh, We're continuing with our series on the Gospel of Mark. This is week number 29, and I've entitled it Spiritual Hygiene. By the way, you can follow along the progression of the story in the Gospel of Mark if you follow Mark the Evangelist on Twitter. Uh, A couple couple times a week, he puts some tweets out about what's going on with the Gospel of Mark, and he, uh, he does a great job. I don't know who runs that Twitter account, but whoever it is, they're brilliant, and they do a great job. So... Let's just go through the passage today. Uh, well, before we do that, let me just do an introduction here real quick. So let me just go back. Um, how many of you have had a past connection to Catholicism? I remember when I was a young boy <clears throat> in Catholic school, just learning to come to the grips with just how often I would sin. The nuns were very good at pointing out what sin was. And the more I learned, the more I realized I had a big sin problem. But of course, being good nuns, they also would teach me how to deal with those many sins so I could be cleansed. I learned Hail Marys. I learned how to do the rosary. I learned the value of a confessional booth, and I found that I really probably needed to go every other hour, but I could only go once a month. I learned that it was important to go to Mass. Penance is good, too. you got to do penance. Like, you know, when you go to the priest and you make a confession, he says, say, tell him no Marys and do this, and then you'll be forgiven. They had tons of good cleaning supplies, spiritual cleaning tools at my disposal. Let me just tell you, you combine a person with severe OCD tendencies like myself with good old-fashioned Catholic guilt and tons of great, repeatable religious tools for washing and cleansing, well, let me tell you, you got yourself a good Catholic there. I was good at the rosary, man. I'm telling you, the prayers, I can talk fast. I have to really slow it down. You think I talk fast up here? I actually slow it down a lot. I could say a lot. I could say Hail Marys. I could say 10 Hail Marys faster than most of you could blink. I was constantly looking in that arsenal of spiritual hygiene tools for some sort of religious smart bomb, if you will. You guys remember some of you older folks might remember that video game Defender 
where you're fighting off all the aliens and you had this one button, you had this smart bomb you could push and it blew everything up on the whole screen. I was looking for a spiritual hygiene smart bomb that could wipe out all of my sins so I could start over fresh every day. The problem with all of that, all that work I started to put in when I was in middle school, it was all a waste of my time. Because my problem was not how good of a Catholic I could be. My problem was I had a heart that frankly was just a fountain of dark sinfulness, sinful thoughts, sinful desires, and temptations that led and yielded themselves to sinful actions. I could never attend enough masses, say enough Hail Marys, or go to enough confessions, or do enough penance to overdo what I had been doing wrong. And why? Because my heart, left to its own, absent supernatural sovereign intervention, my heart is a hopeless, dark hole of depravity. Well, that's a very cheery sermon start, isn't it? Let's go to the passage. And Jesus called the people uh, to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said, Then are, are you also without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and then is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And then he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So we like to look at three applications of each passage. The first one is the history. What about man? What did he do and why and how did he do it? I want to talk about the fact that Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and their faith in man. So to understand this, first you have to know the purpose that we have of the law. Now, the law was the thing that the Pharisees were trying to protect. They felt like you had to follow the law, And frankly, most of the regulations that we find in the Old Testament, and particularly the book of Leviticus, they had a very practical or public health logic to them. They were designed, in many respects, often to protect the people of God. But there was also an underlying reason or lesson in each one of those spiritual laws or rules, and that is this, that spiritual purity, spiritual hygiene, is virtually impossible to achieve through external efforts. God knew that people would need illustrations, lessons, impressions to expose our dire circumstance if we're left to our own. Things that would display the great gulf between his expectations of righteousness and our own plethora of unrighteousness. Matter of fact, in Galatians, Paul says, Now before faith, the gospel... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. What Paul is saying here, the law was there to condemn us, to show us our need of salvation and grace through faith in Christ. 
The law wasn't there to save us. The law was to show how deficient we are. <clears throat> All the ceremonies, the rituals, the dietary instructions, the things you're allowed to eat and not allowed to eat, the purpose of all of those was to expose the depravity of the human heart. <clears throat> so God put, actually, if you think about it, God put human failure into the equation of the law. Why? Because we know this because each rule had a remedy for its inevitable violation. So that was the purpose of the law. But here comes human arrogance. <coughs> Excuse me. Over time, God's people began to assume the responsibility to preserve and fulfill the law was their own. This was the elaborate system that I talked to you about last week called the Mishnah that they developed where we had the fences around the Torah and I explained to you how the, 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 the dietary law of not mixing milk and meat came from a very different law, and it was totally twisted and changed. They didn't see the religious people, their hearts, as being defiled or depraved. All they saw was that the outward could be cleansed by strict, strong, continuous religious effort. Their solution, get this now, their solution is to take the impossibility of keeping the law add another thousands and thousands of rules to it, make it even more impossible, and file, follow all those laws, and then you'll probably be good enough to be cleansed. <clears throat> See, they thought they were internally righteous. They just need to work constantly to keep the outside world from corrupting them. They place their faith in an outward, external, religious system of accomplishment. This effort, I think, is a great example of the arrogance of the human heart. We can do it. We got this. Just bear down. See, the fundamental problem is that they never considered the fact that their hearts were in themselves a fountain of defiling darkness. They arrogantly looked to their outward efforts because surely their hearts were in the right place, right? So that's the history of the passage. We look at the spiritual. What about God? What does he do, and why and how does he do it? I've entitled this section, Vain Spirituality. Jesus is about to create a huge moment here. Politically, religiously, culturally, he's about to expose the abject, colossal failure of their whole theological system. And the first part of this is he explains that man is looking on the outward. So here's the Greek word uh, that is in uh, the passage. Koinou, it's the aorist infinitive. Let me tell you what the aorist infinitive means. It's, it's a verb tense in the old Greek language. It means it is a continuing action or condition without completion. So he's not saying what you did was vain. He says what you did is vain and it continues to be vain, and it will continue to be vain. It will never get any better than vain. It will always be vanity, which means to make unclean by the law, render defiled, profane. He says all that work you do for spiritual hygiene, <clears throat> it's all unclean, all defiled, 
and it will stay that way. It has been, it is, and it will be. It is a continual state of defilement. And he reveals this ongoing fallacy of spending your life pursuing God through outward appearance. He says every time you do it, it's defilement. And it continues to be defilement. And the defilement of your action continues to echo forward. So it's not just that it was defiled in the moment. It's defiled in the moment, and it defiles anything else that comes after. It's the same heart problem that Paul exposed in his own testimony to the Philippians. I love this in Philippians chapter 3, 4 through 7. I'll read the first part. Here's what Paul says to the Philippians. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have reason for more confidence. I was circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew among Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee, one of these types of people. As far as zeal goes, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, in other words, the outward work, I was blameless. But then he says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. See, the problem then and now has always been the human heart. It's incapability to produce anything righteous. It's a shame. Going back to Adam and Eve, every man's heart has been born infected by a spiritual virus of depravity. And it is more contagious than anything we face today. It has, in fact, infected every person on the planet from Adam and Eve to this day. There is no immunity. There is no earthly cure. That's the problem. Man looks upon the outward, but his problem is inside. But God himself looks upon the inward. See, the law... As it reveals the necessity for the standard of righteousness and how far the human heart is from meeting the righteousness he set, the law is designed not to cleanse man, but to point man to the truth of just how bad he really is. This is clear, unmistakable, the message of Jesus. And it wasn't anything new. David knew this. He says it in first Sam- or the story of David in 1 Samuel 16, <clears throat> when they were looking to choose the next king after Saul, <clears throat> the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Look on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. <clears throat> in Psalm 51, David writes this after his sin with Bathsheba and murder of her husband Uriah. He says this in Psalm 51. For you do not delight in sacrifice or outward, or else I'd give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. No, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So as Jesus lays this out for them, their religious dreams, their aspirations, Their goals, their passions, they're all crushed. 
<coughs> he has exposed, <coughs> excuse me, he has exposed the folly of their outward focus. Their hope in religion is crushed. And he's declaring very publicly their beloved system of outward cleansing is now obsolete. <coughs> the new covenant has none of this outward stuff. No ceremonies, no rituals, no rites, no dietary rules, none. <coughs> this should have been good news to them. They should have heard this and said, wait a minute, you mean we don't have to do all that stuff anymore? They no longer had to live with this impossible fool's errand. But they don't receive the message that way. With joy and hope, they respond instead with anger and fear, resentment. <clears throat> so that brings us to the personal. What about us? What are we doing? Why and how do we do it? I've called this section Cleansing the Heart. So this was the Sunday sermon preview I put up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Here's what I said. No matter how hard you scrub, the sponge of religion will never clean your defiled heart. Think about that for a minute. <clears throat> no matter how hard you scrub, the sponge of religion will never clean your defiled heart. <clears throat> See, <clears throat> it's easy for us to sit in judgment of these Pharisees. I mean, we know Jesus. Christians, we know it's not about works, right? It's about grace through faith. <clears throat> Isn't it possible that they genuinely believe that they were in the right? And maybe that we have some of these same tendencies. They're just a little harder for us to see. For example, <clears throat> I want to talk about the idea of nature or nurture. I'll start by asking you this question. You've heard me say what I had to say about the heart. Do you believe you have a full grasp of everything your depraved heart is capable of? I mean, do you really know <clears throat> just how deep it goes? Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful of all things and desperately sick. I love that phrase. I mean, I don't love it because it talks about my heart, but I love the description and the power of it. <clears throat> the heart is deceitful of all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. <clears throat> How deep do you think your depravity goes? How unclean do you think you are on the inside without Jesus? <clears throat> See, what we do is we subconsciously assume it's the world. Christians are really good at this. We assume it's the world that defiles us. <clears throat> Nurtures our evil thoughts. Brings the evil out of us. We love blaming the outside influences. Well, it's Hollywood. <clears throat> well, it's politics. Well, it's the music industry. It's the media. That's not the problem. You know, we think if we just stay clear of those things, we enact practices and habits and rules and standards, we can stay clean from the world. We protect our kids from evil influences. <clears throat> Let me tell you something. Our depravity isn't created by the sinful world. Our depravity has created the sinful world. We are the infection. We are the problem. 
And because of that, we become gospel Pharisees. I mean, the scripture makes it very clear how hopeless the problem is outside of supernatural intervention. Like in James, I love what he says. But each person, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is the process. This is how the illness plays out. It starts in the heart. It lures us away. It entices us, our own desire, and then when it is conceived, brought forth, it is sin, which leads to death and separation from God. Our own human hearts are the breeding ground for everything that can defile a man. Not the world around us, it's here. Yet somehow we evangelicals, we look for ways, even though even though we know the gospel, <coughs> we still look for ways to rely upon our own effort to cleanse ourselves, to keep us unspotted from the world. Even if you don't realize it, you tend to rely upon your own effort to be clean, to escape guilt. Because part of the depravity of the human heart is its arrogant desire for spiritual success to surpass others. Today, evangelicals, like Pharisees, revere buildings. Remember the temple? They revered it. We revere church buildings all the time. Beautiful chapels, cathedrals, that somehow those places are a place of holiness. We revere tradition. I'm not saying these things are evil, but we look to these things for power. We revere ceremony. And rituals to get closer to God. And beyond our liturgy, which I just described, we begin to, this this one we do a lot, we embrace self-righteous political ideology. Well, if you really are a Christian, clearly you would be on this side of the political spectrum or this side because Jesus would do this or Jesus said that. And how in the world can you even think that you are a Christian when your politics make you dirty. Some people just revere and count on hard work. Some people get this. I think some people rely upon fitness. Some people put their trust in the benevolence or philanthropy they do. You know, something I often see in recovery ministry people sometimes relying upon the steps in recovery for cleansing, hoping the steps will remove the guilt from past failures. The steps can certainly help you stay clean, but I'm here to tell you now, whether you like it or not, the steps are powerless to forgive your sin and to transform your depraved, dark heart. Only Jesus can do that. So none of these things in and of themselves are bad, They're not evil, but they're powerless to transform you unless it starts with Christ. Some people even will try to give depraved hearts a chance to make a human choice to accept Jesus into their heart. We call it free will. 
<coughs> even believing that your heart can choose Jesus is reliance upon a depraved heart to make a choice to please God. And so in respect, that is still an outward attempt to, to please God, saying, I just need to make a choice. You can't make a choice. You're totally depraved. See how subtle and deep our depraved heart can be? A subconscious evangelical attempt to create our own Levitical, rabbinical, or pharisaical system, and we don't even realize it. Only instead of twisting the law of Moses, we twist the gospel instead. The very thing intended to be the remedy for our depravity. It's funny how much things change, they stay the same with the human heart. But I want to talk about the solution to spiritual hygiene. It's not fitness. It's not church attendance. It's not hard work. It's not philanthropy. It's not recovery. Nothing wrong with those things. But there's only one solution, and it is joyful capitulation. So this was the picture that, one of the pictures that Mark the Evangelist tweeted this week. Apparently, he drew it on his Note 10 Plus. <clears throat> and uh, you can see the picture of the guy. <clears throat> He's got a dark heart. And at first thought, we might see the moment we learn we are total abject spiritual failures as frightening and sad. What? I'm hopeless? <clears throat> you realize your heart left free to run, <coughs> without consequences. It will embrace greed. It will commit immorality. It craves revenge. It has a tremendous love for money and possession. It loves to sit in judgment. It reeks of political, social, and moral hypocrisy. That's what your heart is capable of on its own. And that's what you want to trust to make a decision to follow Jesus, or that's what you want to trust to do enough things to make God pleased with you because you performed well, really? So you realize that the message the Pharisees didn't hear but should have is the one that you need to embrace today. It's the glorious moment of total, complete capitulation of our will to his grace. That moment Jesus enables you <clears throat> to grasp, even if it's just for a second, the true depths of your own depravity. That is actually the moment of your greatest joy. The moment you realize no religious action, no religious choice, <clears throat> no physical action or choice will ever cleanse your dark, defiled hearts. It's the day that our hope becomes the sovereign grace of God that somehow is able to cut through the deceitful, dark, depraved human heart, pierce it, cleanse it, 
transform it as the Spirit of God, as Paul says and Jesus says, writes the law on the hearts of His people. That day that sovereign grace imparts to you, dark heart and all, the gift of faith. That moment you realize, for the first time, I don't need to carry the impossible fool's errand burden anymore. Because I know that only Jesus can cleanse my dark inside heart. Heavenly Dad, we don't like to spend much time taking inventory of just how much depravity we hold. We like to think that we're pretty decent people. I mean, we're not Hitler. And then somehow, the less time we think about it, the more confident we get in our own spirituality, our own actions, our own thoughts. And that's when it really gets dangerous. But as you said through the prophet Jeremiah, no man knows how sick the human heart is. We know now through what Jesus is teaching us. The moment of joy is when we capitulate and say, I am completely hopeless and helpless. I can't even choose Jesus unless he enables me to. That's how dark our depravity is. But we're so thankful, Dad, through your son, that you give an ultimate anecdote for that virus of depravity. You make us new creations. Old things pass away. And suddenly we become people with hearts with your law written on them. And then we can enjoy the truth that says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Thank you so much for sovereign grace. Thank you so much for rescuing us from our depravity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys again for joining us this week. Things are coming around. We're doing a lot of planning and things to get ready to figure out a way to meet together again. You'll be hearing from that, hearing about that in the future. We just want to make sure you know we still love you. I know we're kind of settling into this new lifestyle. Don't get too comfortable with it. But if you need anything during this time, please make sure you let us know. We got your back. We love you. I'll probably see you Friday. Have a good week.